Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of disease and death that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. For most of history, humans had no idea what caused the plagues that devastated our world. We lived in ignorance, believing that hazards like bad gas or superstitious curses could make us sick. And while recent decades have brought new insights into what spreads disease, communities of yesteryear were left to wonder. Fortunately for Mary Mallon, a cook in the early 1900s, that ignorance was exactly what she needed to stay employed. Later shackled with the unfortunate moniker Typhoid Mary, the Irish immigrant was seemingly immune to the typhoid that ran rampant around her. What Mary didn't know was that she was the cause. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But for the rest of us, who bear our own share of responsibility for public health, there is no such vow. Whether we test ourselves for disease, self-quarantine when contagious, or even wash our hands is entirely up to us. And in a time when much less was known about disease transmission, such measures were easily ignored. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to be assisting Alistair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Mary Mallon, an Irish lass who, without knowing it, touched so many lives that sadly didn't survive, but along the way earned her a nickname that has survived for over a hundred years. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Typhoid Mary, a professional cook who unknowingly spread typhoid to at least 51 people, leading to a suspected three deaths. Today, we'll explore Mary's early life as an Irish immigrant in America. Once she started working in New York, she left disease and devastation in her wake. Next week, we'll delve into the heated investigation that led to Mary's forced isolation and her feverish attempts to escape it. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. While the story of Mary Mallon is one of the most infamous accounts of contagion in human history, some of the details have been lost to time. Still, we can speculate about what might have happened in her beginnings, given what we do know. Like the fact that she was born in Ireland in 1869. After the devastating potato famine, Ireland was now on the brink of social collapse. Families had little to eat, and farmers had nothing to sell. The famine had taken well over a million lives, and disease ran rampant among the lower classes especially, who frequently dealt with crowded and dirty living conditions. It's possible that Mary's parents, Catherine and John Mallon, were among the sick. This may help explain the belief that, at some point during her pregnancy, Catherine Mallon was exposed to typhoid fever, a bacterial infection known for its deadly fever symptoms. At the time, there would have been no way for Catherine to protect her unborn child from becoming infected. It wasn't always common knowledge that diseases could be transmitted from pregnant mothers to their children. Of course, this isn't the case with all of them, but it's usually a concern with certain blood infections and sexually transmitted diseases. This is because they can permeate the placenta via the blood and can also be spread to a child as it makes direct contact with the birth canal. Some common infectious illnesses transferred to unborn children include syphilis, malaria, and strep B infections. Interestingly, HIV can both penetrate the placenta and infect a baby during birth. Good preventative measures for all of these issues include cleanliness, good sexual hygiene, vaccinations, and avoiding certain foods like pasteurized milk and raw meat. It's unclear whether Catherine worried that her illness would pass to her child. However, even if she did, there unfortunately weren't treatments for in utero infections at that time. When Catherine delivered Mary on September 23, 1869, her child was perfectly healthy. Or so it seemed. No one suspected the possibility that the healthy-looking newborn was already infected with Salmonella typhi bacteria. Mary would carry it for the rest of her days. Now, there are no recorded instances of Mary spreading typhoid to anyone during her youth. And it's possible that she came into contact with the bacteria at some point during these early years, rather than being born with it. Whatever the case, as Mary grew up, she became desperate to escape the tough conditions of her homeland. Like millions of her countrymen during the 19th century, she wanted a fresh start in the new world. In 1883, 15-year-old Mary boarded a ship to New York and never looked back. Mary was a single female immigrant. She would have faced extreme prejudice in the booming metropolis from the moment she arrived. Luckily, she had the support of her aunt and uncle who lived in the city and allowed her to stay with them. Mary's career options, however, were limited. She likely developed skills as a maid, relying on other Irish women to show her the ropes. 
and it was important for Mary to listen as she got her humble start tidying houses because life as a domestic worker was anything but easy. Expected to work from sunup to sundown in back-breaking positions, workers were often treated poorly by their employers, underpaid and fired at the drop of a hat. Certain domestic roles, however, were somewhat less replaceable. Perhaps realizing this, Mary eventually decided to pursue a career path as a cook, something she had quite a knack for. And her proficiency came in handy because Mary moved from gig to gig frequently, rarely holding a job for more than a year or two. It's possible she was keen on cultivating her craft with a wide variety of families. But something else may have been keeping Mary on the move. Mary's employers and their families kept getting sick with typhoid fever. Unable to explain her misfortune, Mary might have fled to avoid catching the disease herself. Most typhoid cases in New York City were blamed on its frequently flooding sewage system, so Mary slipped by unsuspected. She spent her 20s building up an impressive culinary resume, and no cases of typhoid were linked to her. That all changed in 1897. At the time, 28-year-old Mary was employed as a live-in cook almost 30 miles out of New York City in a wealthy area called Mamerinek. She worked for the family for three years. Then, one summer day in 1900, her employers welcomed a guest into their home. Little is known about the identity of this visitor, only that about 10 days after his arrival, he began to display the symptoms of typhoid fever. Typhoid symptoms make it a really awful infection to catch. These include high fever, abdominal pain, loss of appetite, headaches, a general malaise, and a number of other wonderful things. Once someone's exposed and then contracts typhoid, the symptoms can show up anywhere from about six days to a month later. In regard to our story, Alistair, it's hard to say how this unknown visitor would have responded to the illness. Today, a healthy young man can overcome the infection in about five days with proper antibiotics, Cipro specifically. Treatment for typhoid in 1900 wasn't great, to put it lightly, and major cities even resorted to chlorinating their water supplies in order to curb their infection rates. Point being, the prognosis for this unfortunate guest wasn't good, even if his health was otherwise top-notch. There just wasn't any guaranteed or even reliable course of intervention at the time. Luckily, the man did recover. But being confronted with such a deadly illness was no doubt a traumatic event. He was one of 350,000 other people who'd contracted typhoid in the United States in 1900. But this was the first official case that would later be linked to Mary Mallon. Keyword, later. See, Mary's employers weren't exactly keen on finding the source of their guest's sickness. Typhoid had come to be associated with poverty and poor living conditions. Wealthy households went out of their way to evade the social stigma. While typhoid can spread via human contact with sewage, this wasn't what caused a visitor to come down with the disease. Typhoid, or Salmonella typhi, is a bacterium that spreads via oral ingestion of fecal matter. 
Because this bacterium can live on the hands, it contaminates what it touches, like food, drinks, and dinnerware. Oftentimes, the original source of infection is contaminated water, which ends up getting used for preparing food. Typhoid can be spread by poor bathroom habits too, like not washing your hands after visiting the toilet. Also, the notion that it only occurred among the lower classes was a giant misconception, as typhoid bacteria can clearly be spread by anyone. It's really unfortunate when certain illnesses become associated with specific demographics. It's also very dangerous and divisive on a societal level because it creates a climate of discrimination and stigmatization. Without a thorough public understanding of typhoid transmission and its link to things like poor city infrastructure, this kind of stereotype proved difficult to avoid. This made it easy for the wealthy to pin outbreaks on their poor and downtrodden employees. Mary's employer likely tried to downplay the incident as much as possible. No official investigation was conducted, and Mary once again found a new job after the outbreak. Her reason for doing so remains unknown. Perhaps she was being cautious. She was a working woman. She couldn't afford catching the disease. Or maybe she was superstitious and wanted to avoid bad luck. Whatever the reason, her departure thrust her into a hunt to find another family that would give her room and board. If a change of scenery is what she was after, she got more than she'd ever dreamed with her next position. She found employment with the family of J. Coleman Drayton, a successful New York City lawyer. In June of 1902, Mary was invited to work at their summer home in the small island town of Dark Harbor, Maine. By this time, Mary is thought to have developed a trademark recipe, homemade peach ice cream, an uncooked dish which she prepared with her bare hands. To us, the health hazard is glaring, but Mary hadn't a clue that she was preparing a confection of infection. Coming up, Mary Mallon's famous peach ice cream becomes one of the deadliest desserts in American history. The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher. Meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. As an unmarried female immigrant, Mary Mallon had no better option than to support herself as a domestic worker in turn-of-the-century New York. Fortunately, for Mary at least, she found solace in cooking and poured herself into it. Although she was constantly outrunning typhoid outbreaks, Mary found job hunting easy. Incredibly, no one looking at her resume noticed that many of her previous employers had been struck by the disease. And no one knew that, by this point, two cases could be directly tied to her. But Mary's luck was running out, and her employment record was about to grow even more questionable. In the summer of 1902, Mary was working for J. Coleman Drayton on an island off the coast of Maine. But tragically, on June 17th, the Drayton's footman, a male servant who would usually be in charge of setting the table for meals, began showing symptoms of typhoid. The infection didn't end with him. A member of the Drayton family soon fell ill, and the disease continued to spread. Out of the nine people living in that house, seven caught typhoid, three members of the Drayton family, and four servants. Only Mary Mallon and Jay Coleman himself avoided the disease. Coleman had caught typhoid years before and had probably developed an immunity. But nobody knew why Mary never fell ill. For weeks, she did her best to tend to everyone, running around frantically, delivering ice to their boiling foreheads and water to their dry, cracked lips. As far as anyone knew, Mary was constantly exposing herself to the risk of contracting typhoid, yet she never showed any visible signs of infection. In the Drayton's eyes, she must have seemed like a miracle. The island in Maine was remote, so real medical aid was likely hard to come by. Mary was their only hope, and it's quite possible both the Drayton family members and their servants wondered whether they were going to die. Death from typhoid has been dramatically curbed today thanks to antibiotics, but over a hundred years ago, the chance that it would be fatal was very high. Even today, well over 100,000 people die from it annually, and this is particularly a problem in underdeveloped countries when overcrowded cities have subpar sanitation systems. Contaminated food and water remain the primary spreaders, and for all deadly foodborne outbreaks worldwide, approximately half of the total deaths are due to typhoid fever. Without proper antibiotic treatment, 
10 to 30% of people die after contracting this incredibly infectious disease. This is so tragic because treatment bumps this percentage down significantly, resulting in a 1 to 4% death rate. This is one of those things that really highlights how healthcare availability should be a fundamental human right. When people do end up dying from typhoid, it's because the infection spreads and overtakes major organ systems. This can even lead to sepsis, which has a very low survival rate without appropriate intervention. Underlying health issues are, of course, contributors to typhoid mortality, as well as limited access to decent care. Given the times and the viciousness of the illness, Prospects probably look pretty negative. The weak typhoid hit the Drayton household. Somehow, Mary was able to nurse everyone back to health. They all lived. Jay Coleman Drayton was so impressed by Mary's dedication that he provided her a generous $50 bonus, equivalent to a purchasing power of more than $1,300 in 2022. But more than grateful, Coleman was cautious. Determined to prevent any further spread of the disease, he ordered an investigation. Two doctors, one from Boston and the other from Philadelphia, were hired to identify the source of the infection. There is no evidence that Mary was ever suspected. The medical professionals believe that cooked food was, in fact, the least likely source of infection, and Mary an unlikely source. But of course, not all of Mary's meals were cooked. Mary supposedly liked to treat her employers to her special peach ice cream. Unlike a cooked meal, frozen ice cream and fresh fruit could easily transmit live bacteria to anyone who ate it, especially if the person who prepared it wasn't following sanitary measures. One summer evening, days or perhaps weeks before their symptoms showed, the Draytons likely delighted in this fruity dessert, unaware that it would bring them to the brink of death. Unfortunately, no one put two and two together. Instead, the investigators arrived at the simplest explanation. The first person to show symptoms, the footman, had been handling all the silverware in the household. At some point, while he was infected, he had likely set the table for the whole family. His status as a domestic servant only supported this theory. It was an open and shut case. The footman took all the blame. Once again, Mary was off the hook. At some point after the family recovered, Mary left the Draytons. By the following winter, 34-year-old Mary had begun working for the family of Henry Gilsey, another New York lawyer. Mary lived and worked with them in New York City for some time. At first, all seemed to be going well. There weren't any typhoid cases, none that were suspicious enough to report anyway. But then again, Mary had little reason to make uncooked food, especially ice cream, during the cold winter months. When the seasons changed, Mary was asked to work at their summer home in Sands Point, Long Island. Trouble brewed. Most of Mary's known typhoid outbreaks had occurred in the warmer months, and even among the wealthy, vacation homes were sometimes kept to a lower standard of cleanliness. 
Unlike Mary's previous employers, however, the Gilseys housed their seven servants in a separate house, away from the main family. 34-year-old Mary moved in on June 1, 1904. Exactly one week later, a familiar pattern repeated itself. The laundress for the household fell ill. The estate's gardener followed, then the wife of one of the butlers and her sister. Of the seven servants, four contracted the illness. And as always, Mary Mallon wasn't one of them. Mary likely did some of her cooking preparations in the servants' quarters before bringing the finished meal out to the family. Some have speculated that her colleagues had ample opportunity to sample her ingredients. This would have put them in direct contact with the raw fruits and vegetables that Mary handled. But because the workers lived separately, no one in the Gilsey family ever caught the disease. Still, hoping to avoid infamy of bringing typhoid to the area, they opened up an investigation. As before, it was determined that the first person to display symptoms must have brought the disease to the house. This time, blame fell squarely on the laundress, although no one could explain how she'd caught it in the first place. With no love lost between Mary and the Gilseys, who kept their help at arm's length, she quickly left the position, and Mary's story once again disappeared into history. She spent more than 12 months under the radar, then resurfaced in 1906. That year, the disease took at least 639 lives in New York City alone. An assessment tool called the Vidal test was slowly starting to reduce the spread of typhoid, and the public health department was getting better at protecting water lines from sewer contamination. But as the overpopulated city managed to cut back contagion levels, Mary remained on the prowl, setting her sights on yet another family. The Warrens. Charles Henry Warren was an influential New York banker. And like many of Mary's former employers, he and his family enjoyed summering in Long Island. In 1906, Charles rented out a home in Oyster Bay and brought his wife and two daughters alongside a handful of staff, including, of course, Mary. Like clockwork, one of their daughters became ill. <coughs> Horrified, Charles could only watch as his wife began to show symptoms as well. Shortly after, two of his maids followed suit. Then, his other daughter fell ill, as did his gardener. There was little anyone could do. But while Charles struggled to care for his family, the home's owner, George Thompson, worried that his treasured and profitable vacation rental might become known as a breeding ground for disease. He hired two private investigators to track down a potential cause for the outbreak. Ultimately, the investigators pointed the finger at the domestic laborers as the possible source. But Thompson wasn't buying it. He turned to his network of public health authorities seeking out someone who might actually be able to crack this mystery. Enter Dr. George Soper, 
a 37-year-old sanitation engineer and typhoid investigator. Dr. Soper was not a medical doctor, but he held advanced degrees in sanitary engineering. Sanitation engineers are civil engineers who investigate environmental hazards to prevent contamination. Their focus centers on maintaining and improving the sanitation conditions of a given population, and they primarily specialize in human waste disposal and supplying communities with safe drinking water. Their job involves lots of random sample testing of local water, soil, and streams, which gives them insight into any contaminants that may be a threat. At the time of our story, this profession was largely dedicated to the prevention and reduction of disease, which makes a lot of sense given its prevalence then. In contrast to the prior physician typhoid investigators, Dr. Soper might have had a more intimate knowledge of how waste is handled, including useful details about oversight or specific removal techniques. Being familiar with the nuts and bolts of waste management, he might have been privy to things that the physicians weren't. It's always important to get as many perspectives as possible. Although sanitation engineers aren't medical professionals in the traditional sense, doctors greatly rely on them to help prevent the spread of illness. After years of success investigating outbreaks all over the East Coast, Dr. Soper had earned a reputation as an epidemic fighter. He figured that the case of the Warrens was like any other and began to look into the usual sources. Dr. Soper analyzed everything the outhouse, the cesspool, even their dairy products, a common culprit in those days. He also looked at the water sources leading to the house, which he suspected may have been contaminated by sewage. But after testing the water, he was unable to find any evidence of typhoid. The usual suspects exhausted, Dr. Soper got creative. The Warrens had purchased a batch of clams from a local woman. Soper wondered if they were contaminated. But when he discovered that other members of the household who had eaten the same clams didn't fall ill, he was back to square one. This was a pivotal moment in the investigation. Without any obvious leads, Dr. Soper could have resigned himself to the same conclusion as previous investigators, blaming the outbreak on the first person to display symptoms of typhoid. But he stuck to his resolve. Something deeper was at work here. This wasn't his first rodeo. The epidemic fighter wasn't so easily defeated by a mystery. Coming up, Dr. Soper makes a shocking discovery as Mary infects new homes. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
Now, back to the story. For years, Mary Mallon floated between jobs, depending on her skill as a cook to get by. But as Mary leapt from household to household, she left behind a shocking paper trail. A string of typhoid infections had been terrorizing wealthy New York families for over six years. But no one had yet made the connection to Mary. However, in the summer of 1906, one outbreak prompted a more thorough investigation than ever before. Dr. George Soper, a sanitation engineer, was on the case. Typically, a cook like Mary might be above suspicion. The cooking process kills bacteria. However, when Dr. Soper looked at the Warren family's routine, he realized Mary was the only thing that had changed. She was hired on August 4th, mere weeks before the first illness. It was an interesting lead. Dr. Soper couldn't dismiss it. He decided he had to question her. There was just one problem. Mary had already vanished. Curiosity peaked, Dr. Soper contacted Mary's employment agency, who gave him a list of her previous jobs. He was surprised to find that Mary had cooked for at least five different households in the past seven years. Armed with the details of Mary's resume, Dr. Soper then compared her work history to a list of reported typhoid outbreaks. Sure enough, every single home in Mary's records had one. And she had never been suspected. But according to the evidence, Mary herself had never been hospitalized for the disease. Dr. Soper knew that she was probably not completely immune. A typhoid vaccine had been developed, but wasn't yet widely available. So Mary was either incredibly lucky in evading sickness every time it struck, or she was cursed to walk the earth spreading disease wherever she went. As fantastical as this notion may have seemed, Dr. Soper claimed to have read about such a condition. Several years earlier, German scientists had found typhoid bacteria living within seemingly healthy individuals. They named these chronic carriers Typhus bazillantragerin. As we unfortunately know all too well today, not everyone with a contagious disease shows symptoms. Salmonella typhi is such a tough bacterium because it's able to withstand the inflammatory response the body creates when it senses invading microbes and pathogens. In fact, salmonella bacteria take up residence deep within the very cells that are released to combat it. These are called macrophage cells, the attack cells at the front lines of the immune system. Although macrophages would destroy most intruding organisms, Salmonella has a unique method of manipulating macrophage cells, forcing them to cycle through their inflammatory assault phase quicker. Once out of this phase, the macrophage cells actually become hospitable environments for Salmonella, and their metabolism actually starts working in favor of the bacteria. Like Salmonella typhi bacterium, the expression of typhoid fever is also very interesting. 
Even sometimes after treatment, the bacteria have rooted so deeply within someone's cells that they become chronic carriers. Mary Mallon was a chronic asymptomatic carrier or one who never experienced symptoms. This can even happen if someone has a small exposure to the bacteria. While they may not become sick, Salmonella typhi can still hide in their macrophage-infested immune cells and replicate. A person like this would thus shed the bacteria, but wouldn't experience illness. Between 1 and 6% of people who get infected with Salmonella typhi become asymptomatic carriers, so even today this is intriguing. This humble domestic cook could be the first known asymptomatic typhoid carrier in America. Dr. Soper realized that if he could prove his hypothesis, his own name would be written into the annals of medical history. But first, he would have to track down the elusive Mary Mallon. Meanwhile, unaware that she was being hunted, Mary took employment with a new household, less than a month after the Warren outbreak. But once again, just two weeks after Mary's arrival, a laundress caught typhoid. Mary left the job just as quickly as she'd arrived, working with the family for only five weeks. While we can't say with certainty that Mary knew she was the source of the typhoid outbreaks, at this point, she may very well have suspected she had something to do with them. But she couldn't stop working. She needed to support herself. By December of 1906, 37-year-old Mary was working for the wealthy family of Walter Bowen. Soon after, one of her fellow servants, a chambermaid, was admitted to New York Presbyterian Hospital with typhoid. The infection spread accordingly throughout the household, following a pattern now grimly familiar. But this time, tragedy struck harder than ever before. On February 23, 1907, the Bowen's daughter passed away. It was the first fatality officially linked to Mary Mallon. However, this time, Mary remained in the Bowen's service for reasons unknown. And it wasn't long before Dr. Soper caught word of the tragedy. In March 1907, he visited the Bowen residence to investigate, only to stumble into none other than Mary Mallon, working in the kitchen. He had tried to find her for months with no luck. Here was his chance to confront her. But Mary wasn't having any of it. Dr. Soper requested samples of her blood, urine, and feces. According to his written account of her reaction, she was both confused and deeply offended. Dr. Soper probably could have been more polite in his approach. However, his methods were sound. As far as testing goes, these are bodily fluids, where salmonella typhi can be easily detected under a microscope. Dr. Soper likely wanted to test all of these bodily substances to give himself the utmost confirmation and confidence in his theory. As far as my own practice goes, I've never gotten any real pushback when asking for a stool, blood, or urine sample. 
I actually once had a very old patient who needed all three of these tests done. When he turned to his wife to ask what I'd said, she yelled to him, the doctor would like to see your underwear. I certainly understand Mary's reaction to an extent, especially in that she was blindsided and confronted at her job. Mary was a proud woman and refused to hand over her fecal matter. After all, she'd never expressed symptoms of typhoid in her life. Now this rude man claimed that she was contagious, it didn't make sense to her. But her pride may have been covering a darker truth. If Dr. Soper could pin the typhoid outbreaks on her and the death of that young girl, she might never find work as a cook again. Whether motivated by confusion or fear, Mary reacted viciously. There, in the kitchen, she turned and grabbed a long carving fork. She pointed the two sharp points at the stranger in her kitchen and advanced. Then, blue eyes wild with fury, she herded him into a small narrow hallway, walking faster and faster until she broke into an all-out sprint. They ran through the hall and out of the building. Dr. Soper saw the tall iron gate and fled towards it, Mary and her weapon in hot pursuit. Only when Dr. Soper reached the sidewalk did Mary stop, perhaps afraid that someone might see her. The sanitation engineer felt lucky to escape. While he left with his tail between his legs and no feces to test, Dr. Soper was more convinced than ever that Mary was to blame for the typhoid outbreaks dotting her past. And he was determined to let it illuminate the future of medicine. Mary's unique story would educate all future generations about the spread of disease. It would help reduce the ignorance surrounding transmission and effectively secure him the legacy he'd always wanted in the medical world. Of course, there were lives at stake too. Mary had infected at least 22 people and probably many more that went unreported. Soper knew that something had to be done. But strive as he might to protect the public from Mary, the worst was yet to come. Next week, we'll track how the medical world teamed up to take down Mary Mallon and make her a fugitive in the process. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Alistair. For more information on Mary Mallon, aka Typhoid Mary, among the many sources we used, we found Typhoid Mary, Captive to the Public's Health by Judith Levitt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stanky, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille. 
fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murder stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.